Welcome to Pennsylvania in Focus, powered by the Center Square and a production of America's Talking Network. I'm Alan Wooden, Managing Editor at the Center Square Newswire Service. To support fine podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. You can find all of the Center Square's great podcasts at americastalking.com. You can also link to the Center Square podcast through the podcast drop-down menu at thecentersquare.com. We are recording on Thursday, October the 20th. Here today is Dan McCaleb, the executive editor for the Center Square, and Anthony Hennon, reporter for the Center Square covering all of Pennsylvania. Dan, how are you doing today? Doing out, doing well, Alan, yourself? I'm doing pretty good. Anthony, how about you? How are you doing today? Not too bad. As we record today, the uh, Philadelphia Eagles are now 6-0. and They're the NFL's lone unbeaten. They have the week off, and then they're going to host the Pittsburgh Steelers. Last time they started 7-0 and was 2004, and that led to a Super Bowl against a young fellow named Brady. You guys ever heard of him? You heard of him, right? A few times, uh, I think, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. The Eagles lost uh, Super Bowl 39 to the Patriots, 24-21, and that was the third of Brady's Super Bowl wins. Um, pop quiz today, guys. Uh, 57 Eagles on the roster. They may be on the physically unable to perform list, but they're on the roster. How many of that 57 were not even seven years old when they played that last Super Bowl had not reached their seventh birthday. How many of them? Wow, that's pretty specific. Not their seventh <laughs> birthday. Um, in other say, words, you kind of you kind of remember things from about the time you're somewhere five, four, five, six, seven, eight, something like that. But how many of them were not even seven years old? Let me guess. What was that the, Super Bowl year again? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, uh, Anthony. What was that Super Bowl year again? Super Bowl year was the 2004 season. So that was I'm going to say, uh, let me say about tw- 23. 23. All right, Dan. And this is a near impossible one. I'll say, let, I'll go lower and say 17. How many did you say, Anthony? Uh, 23. Well, you guys are right around it. It is 20. It is <laughs> so we just split the difference, huh? <laughs> you split it right down the middle. Uh, and, and while we're on sports, the Phillies, uh, congratulations to them. They beat the Cardinals. They beat the Braves in the playoffs so far. Uh, as we record, they're one-to-one with the Padres in the National League Championship Series. That's coming to Citizens Bank Park this weekend. Philadelphia looking for its first World Series appearance since 2009, first title since 2008. One more pop quiz, guys. How many National League pennants have the Phillies won? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, this is where my growing up in Ohio is really handicapping me. Uh, I'll guess uh, eight. I was going to go there with eight, but seeing as Anthony already put it out there, I'll go one lower at seven. Dan, you're killing us on the quizzes. 1915, 1950, 1980, 83, 93, 2008, 2009. That does add up to seven. So they are looking to to get their eighth National League pennant if they can beat the Padres and make the World Series. Good luck to them. Should be fun. Gentlemen, as we turn to our topics today, let's start with education. Uh, Anthony filed a 
couple of really insightful stories this week related to it. We want to touch on them to lead us off. Uh, the mental health of students is at the forefront of one story. And let's go ahead to uh, one, in the, one of the shining spots of Anthony's story. And I'll ask the same question of each of you. Um, is this something that seems like it has a need for government to fix by throwing money at it? Or should we be able to see improvements if educators and those in the education system at the school level have a connection with the students beyond standing at the front of the classroom? Uh, I'll start you off by assuring that, yes, uh, in my growing up years, there were teachers and coaches and other staff that uh, they weren't in either of the roles that I knew that I talked to those folks from time to time. They were influences in my life growing up. Um, maybe that's gone away. Maybe it was a product of being in a small community. But uh, one of the specialists quoted in Anthony's story does suggest positive relationship with an adult outside of school is a good thing. Dan, your thoughts as we talk about mental health and students. Yeah, like you, Alan, I definitely had coaches and teachers and and others in the school system who um, I looked up to, who I felt I could have conversations with. And I think they should be a part of that. And I think we're going to get into this more in the, in the second education story we talk about. But I think there, need, there needs to be communication um, between schools and parents, too, um, when there are potential mental health um, issues. As, as schools... Um, should not if if, uh, if a teacher, for example, or a coach, um, a student comes to a teacher or a coach and expresses you know, whatever men, mental health is many different things, right? But it expresses some some uh, concern that they're having um, mental health issues with something. Uh, I think it's fair that a teacher and a co or a coach or an administrator, for that matter, or a counselor, um, you know, try and help that student with that. But there should also be communication back to parents. Anthony? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I really need to add that much here. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a rural school district. Um, you know, I remember growing up, I had, I had great parents. I mean, I had support from, from teachers, from coaches, um, you know, from, uh, other, you know, church members. Um, I don't know. I, I think these things can sometimes be easier um, on one hand in rural areas just because, you know, you're not necessarily students aren't getting lost in a school of, you know, one, two, three thousand. So it's easier, I think, to actually at least have some connection with, you know, an adult who you can trust, not worry about. I, I think on the flip side, though, the, the con for a lot of these rural schools is, um, you know, budgetary needs or actually finding, you know, enough, um, either enough nurses in the area or enough mental health professionals in the area where the school can actually hire these people on and make sure those sort, sorts of support is there. Um, you know, and I, I think also this is, uh, this is tricky because we like to think schools can just take care of this or make sure every student succeeds, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I think also a lot of these problems that we put on schools are something that go way beyond schooling itself. You know, if, if a kid is coming from you know trouble at home or if their family's economic situation isn't great um you know a lot of the times these things get chalked up as failure on the school where the school can't really control that they might be able to make it better but even if you know with the involvement of school it's better it still looks pretty bad on the school uh so you know i, I think again this kind of goes back to these community ties not putting too much on the school there but also making sure that schools can fill that gap when it's needed and can you know trusted adults can't act for the interest of students. 
Do we think that maybe uh, some of the uh, things that are going on here in Pennsylvania with this particular story, um, we're talking about putting a lot of taxpayer money on it. Um, are we are we throwing money at a problem and is it sustainable? I mean, uh, a lot of times money like this comes from grants and things like that, or uh, maybe a legislature approves it and then the legislature changes who's in it. Um, what what are we looking at there, Anthony? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, pretty clearly from one of the uh, one of the experts who testified at this hearing centered by the uh, Center for uh, Rural Pennsylvania. Um, you know, uh, it was a uh, Jody McLeod Mismer who uh, works for St. Luke's University Health Network um, talked about a lot of how uh, mental health services are uh, are financed, and it's uh, it's usually reimbursement is low either through the Medicaid system or through private insurance. Um, you know, the state issues grants and that sort of thing. But she said these grants are not sustainable; they don't build a sustainable system precisely because they're not steady. Um, you know, they might be for one, three, five years at a time. So it's hard to really build the infrastructure around that. Um, it is important to note that state funding has been increasing just in general, um, but a lot of that has been coming through grants. Um, the latest state budget, there's about $190 million statewide that went for um, school safety and security and also school mental health grants. Um, so, you know, it's, it's great that money's going out. But right now, it does seem like a uh, you know an effort to fill some holes and catch up on problems that have been building for a while, rather than you know really building a, a cohesive system for uh, for these issues. Dan, we also often uh, tap into your uh, uh, ability to to see a lot in different states and what have you. Uh, do you see things like this where taxpayer money is? Uh, being looked at as the the solution to some of the mental health issues with our youth. Uh, so yes, it's definitely not just a, a, an issue that's isolated uh, to to uh, Pennsylvania. I know uh, Anthony uh, in his story this week quoted um, a, a, a quoted a source, someone who testified at the committee that this is. <clears throat> mental health issues have been around in schools for a long time, uh, that this is predates the pandemic. But I think the pandemic um, and decisions to school uh, to close schools and in certain cases, you know, isolate students who might be from a, you know, one parent family and that parent works, things like that. I think that's accelerated uh, the problem. And I do think um, that schools, when when they go through their budgeting process, um, that, well, they should pr- prioritize what they should spend their money on, um, and I, I certainly think, in in large, in part because of the increased um, issues with mental health uh, among our youth, um, that mental health should be a factor when you're deciding to determine how to spend taxpayer dollars. Um, I do also think, though, that number of schools not speaking to any specific school in Pennsylvania or just focusing only in on Pennsylvania here, a lot of schools tend to use taxpayer money on on things that I don't think should be necessarily, you know, huge priorities. Um, and rather than seeking tax increases um, to address mental health issues in schools, they should take a z- zero-based budgeting approach to it figure out what their top priorities are and fit and, and place the tax money that they're already getting to address those priorities. Yeah. I just uh, would also right. add that during the hearing, we also had uh, input from a superintendent of a rural school about uh, 
think it's about 90 miles north uh, northeast of Pittsburgh. Um, but what he really focused on is how, you know, this has been an issue that's been brewing since before COVID, uh, but really focused on the erosion of the social fabric and the decline of the institutions that formally defined and upheld our society, as uh, Eric May of the Brook- Brookville Area School District put it. Um, and, you know, he, he pointed out, you know, mental health and, you know, making sure we have professionals to deal with that is important. Uh, but he really wanted to emphasize the importance of just people and adults who care about students being around them, making sure that students have something to do, um, whether it be athletics, whether it be something artistic or just some club that they're interested in. And I think when uh, when students do have those sort of community connections, then I, I think that can really help, um, you know, problems that start and then get to a solution or to help before it really grows into something more serious. Okay. And as we move to another story filed at the com this week, um, I think we can all agree there's uh, no question or a, a more hot button issue lies in the uh, gender and races issue of discussion that's been going on in education, uh, certainly in the forefront of some of the election races across the country. Um, Anthony, the public hearing by the Pennsylvania State Government Committee, uh, it was filled with emotion. To put it modestly, um, it had at least one accusation of being unfair. Multiple parents spoke. Legislators chimed in. Uh, first, Anthony, tell us uh, what's the the short side of what is in Senate Bill uh, 996, which, by the way, uh, is still in committee and has to get a vote from there to reach the full Senate. But, but Anthony, what's in that bill? Yeah, so uh, th- this bill is being called the uh, a Parental Bill of Rights uh, by its sponsor, Senator Doug Mastriano, who is also the uh, Republican uh, nominee for governor in the in the upcoming election. Um, it's similar to a number of other bills that we've seen um, recently, and you know, in the last couple decades. Um, I think there's different versions of this bill passed. It was in about a dozen. I think now it's up to about fifteen different states. Uh, but basically, it's sort of it's emphasizing, um, I guess, the, the fundamental rights of parents um, to direct the upbringing, education, healthcare, mental health of uh, their child, um, and essentially, um, it, it sort of requires schools to make all school records um, available to parents. Either you know, if it's if it's records related to their child, then they have access to it. Um, if right to review, um, you know, instructional instruction materials or um, curriculum. Um, that their child is learning from, um, unless there's a, uh, I believe their language is uh, without demonstrating that such action is reasonable and necessary to achieve a compelling state interest. Um, but basically ensuring that parents have access to what their children are learning, um, what uh, school officials are noting about their child. Um, we, we've had some issues in Pennsylvania, um, especially in suburban Philadelphia, such as Bucks County, where um, parents were trying to get access to, you know, what uh, what the school was teaching kids related to, um, you know, gender identity, LGBT issues, racial issues, um, and a lot of uh, school districts were just stonewalling parents' requests. Um, you know, th- this is obviously a very uh, hot button issue that flares up, where uh, you know people disagree about what they want their uh, children to be learning. Um, the ACLU filed a lawsuit over similar issues in October. Um, you know, which they allege um, LGBT discrimination against students. Uh, but th- this is what one of those bills kind of reflecting, trying to assert the uh, the rights of parents to, you know, if not control the curriculum, at least be aware of what uh, what schools are teaching, what they're telling students. 
And uh, Dan, you know, Mastriano says 12 other states recognize parental rights. Uh, we're not going to say that he's wrong to push this, but uh, why does any state need such a law? What's the argument for it? What's the pushback against it? I think it's become a, a, a an issue that's at the forefront of parents' minds. Again, I'm going to drag it back to the uh, pandemic. When, when schools closed at the beginning of the pandemic, and many of them stayed closed for, for more than a year, parents had to get more involved with the, you know, these um, remote learning um, classes. They had to help their children, you know, make sure they had, could, could access uh, their schools and their classes and stuff like that. And I think that sort of opened up some information to parents that um, um, they didn't realize that the uh, schools um, weren't just sticking to reading, writing, arithmetic, science, and whatnot, that they were they were getting into some of these social issues. And that's sort of what has led to this being, a, as, as Anthony said, a hot button issue in Pennsylvania and around the state. Um, many would argue that in Virginia, you know, south of, of, of Pennsylvania, uh, their new governor there, uh, Glenn Youngkin, uh, won on a parental rights and education um, issue. His opponent, uh, the former incumbent um, governor, said at a debate, live debate, that parents had no rights uh, to know what uh, schools are teaching or to have a say in what schools uh, are teaching. And parents, parents in the state of Virginia um, essentially voted, uh, many, I should say, not all, but many voted on that issue and uh, elected Glenn Youngkin there. So <clears throat> personally, Parents should have a right uh, to know what's what's going on this in schools when it comes to certainly certain social um, issues. Should they have the should they be the only ones that have a say? No, but they should be part of the conversation. And as they've gotten more information, um, I, I I feel like they should have a right. Anthony, what's going to happen next with uh, where the situation is now? Yeah, so um, you know they they have this public hearing. Um, generally, it's sort of up to the discretion of decision makers here to bring. Uh, bring a vote on uh, the bill. Um, so, but essentially, uh, you know, the, the bill will be there until, uh, you know, it either gets tabled or it is brought to a vote in the committee. Um, if the, uh, if the uh, committee votes to move it on, then it will receive first consideration in the Senate. Um, you know, it, it basically has to go through three full considerations in the Senate. Um, you know, perhaps some amendments might work in there, then it would have to filter through, uh, the house in a similar process. So I, I, uh, you know, the, uh, general assembly only has a few more, um, few more voting days, uh, before the end of the year. Uh, so I'm not sure if it will actually pop up this session or not. Um, but you know, it's definitely, it's one that's clearly uh, a live issue for Democrats and for Republicans. And, and, and Anthony, as you mentioned, there's only so many session voting days left. Governor, um, Tom Wolf, uh, of course, is term limited, is not running for re-election. So it, let's say the Republican-controlled um, legislature um, passes this um, this bill. The governor would still have to sign it for it to become law. Mm-hmm. Um, um, is it likely going to be the next whoever um, voters elect in November that would have the final say? Then on yeah, that? most most likely. Um, yeah, I, I'll be, I'd be very surprised if it you know gets through. It's it's not out of the question here, but generally. Uh, Simply, you know, legislators don't move that fast unless it's a very compelling reason. And then, you know, it's it's clear why it's getting a hearing since, you know, Mastriano is a sponsor and also the 
uh, gubernatorial nominee for Republicans. Um, but you know, it, it'd be it'd be very tricky to get that fast tracked. All right, Dan and Anthony, thank you for your insights today. That is all the time that we have this week. We encourage you to find news that matters for taxpayers of Pennsylvania at thecentersquare.com. To support fine podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. This has been episode 33 of the Pennsylvania Focus Podcast, part of the America's Talking Network. Find all of the Center Square's podcasts at americastalking.com. For Dan McCaleb, Anthony Hennon, I'm Alan Wooten, and we'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.